Okay, on today's episode, we're going to talk about questions that get asked, and we're going to talk about how you'd find them in the National Electrical Code, so stick around. It's going to be a great episode where we kind of go over various questions that have been asked over the years, so stay tuned. You're listening to Electrician Live with your host, Paul Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the broadcast. My name is Paul Abernathy, and I come to you every week. If you listen to our show on Saturday evening, it's at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. You know who I am. If you follow me through the years when you're preparing for electrical exams or you just have code questions, you more than uh, surely have heard of MasterTheNEC.com or ElectricalCodeAcademy.com or other variations, the .net, .org of those. Uh, welcome to the podcast. We do this All the time providing education, and again, you can listen to all of them based on all our podcasts on MasterTheNEC.com, or you can go over to our YouTube channel, which is YouTube.com forward slash MasterTheNEC. So from time to time, I get questions that uh, come in, and they're asking me various things, different code references and stuff like that, and they just want to know, where do I find this or that in the National Electrical Code. So I figured we would kind of do a little bit of a question and answer, and I try to answer some of these questions. And i got a list of them here that uh, people ask, and we'll use the code book just like everybody else and uh, give you time. And so one of the ways that I do this, or ability to do this, is that you listening along have the ability to pause at any time when I uh, read a question or talk about a certain topic, and you can look it up yourself. So it allows you to interact and and be able to look up things in your code book and stay engaged in the process. So something we've done on our videos and uh, for years, and we're doing it on our, obviously on our podcast as well. So uh, one of the questions that I ask here is, Paul, what if I have a dry type transformer that's a thousand volts nominal or less? And I want to install it in a hollow space of buildings, not per, uh, not permanently closed in by the structure. So I'm assuming he's talking about up in a suspended ceiling. So putting dry transformers up in a suspended ceiling, the first thing we know is, is if you have that question uh, or you've dealt with a question, you it's, it's a question that specifically pertains to transformers. So one of the easier questions to to answer in this case would be, I mean, obviously you can use the index, but if you're trying to learn the code and, and you want to get used to it, you know right off the bat you're, you're dealing in Article 450, right? Because that's transformers. And it doesn't take you long when you're in it to kind of hit the bold points, uh, the bold text, and you will see that it'll have different, uh, you know, different parts, different subdivisions, different uh points of it that you can just kind of go through for the different sections. Uh, and in this case, we're looking, the key here is it's asking about this, this space, this, this, this hollow space. Okay. Cause his question was, um, what size transformer or are transformers permitted in these hollow spaces of buildings, uh, that are not permanently closed in. Okay, so if you go to the National Electrical Code, you go to Article 450, it doesn't take you long to get to uh, where we're at 450.13. In 450.13, you're going to see 
It's going to have open installations, and it's going to have B, which is hollow space installations. Kind of goes along with what this this, uh, individual is asking. So what it says is 450.13B. So to answer his question, you can have transformers up there. That is okay. But the code says dry type transformers, nominal or uh, 1,000 volts, nominal or less, and not exceeding 50 kVA shall be permitted in hollow spaces of buildings not permanently closed in by the structure, uh, provided they meet the ventilation requirements in 450.9 and separation from combustible material in accordance with 450.21a. Transformers so installed shall not be required to be readily accessible. Another question that, that people ask all the time. Typically, a transformer, once it's done, once it's connected, everything's done, really doesn't need to be readily accessible. But, again, people will argue that that's something that requires ready access. But, again, there's not switches in there. There's typically not overcurrent devices in there. Uh, you're just simply making tap connections uh, in the transformer, to depending on the voltage you're trying to achieve, primary to secondary, or whatever the, the actual transformer is rated for. So, again, so to answer that question for the gentleman, uh, be 50 kVA or less is permitted in that hollow space. Uh, and as long as you still got to meet all the other requirements for ventilation and separation from combustible material, but good news is 450.13b gives you the roadmap to everything else that you have to, to look at, right? So that one's not difficult. So uh, hopefully you got your, your question answered on that one there. Okay, let's see here. The next question we have is, Paul, I have a switchboard that's 480... Y277, so 480Y coming before the 277, we know that we're, we're talking three-phase. It's a Y. Okay, uh, switchboard, and it says it has exposed parts on one side, and it, there's a concrete wall on the other side. What is my required working space? Okay, well, this is a, a working space depth requirement. Obviously, there's a couple things that we need we need to know, and we know that it's 480Y277, Okay. And we know that you have the switchboard, and then opposite the live parts is a concrete wall. Okay, so if I'm standing in front of it, to my back is the concrete wall. So we, we have these variables. What's the first thing we do? Well, a, a code savvy person knows at this point we're talking about a general requirement, right? So this is a general requirement that's going to put us in Article 110, which is the requirements for electrical installations. Now, for any given amount of time, you're going to get used to dealing with, uh, this is obviously the question is dealing with 1,000 volts or or less. Um, So again, 480.277, switchboard application. So that's going to put me, when I look at uh, 110, uh, that's going to put me in the working spaces. And people are real familiar with this by now. We've come accustomed to 110.26 and the width, the height, the depth, and, and all those rules that pertain to working space. So to answer your question, that's going to take us to 110.26a, which is dealing with working space. Of course, we have an A1, uh, we have an A2, and an A3. So in this specific question, is looking for the minimum space in the depth. Okay, Not the height, not the width, but the, the actual depth of the working space. So when dealing with the depth, it's going to be, it doesn't take you long under 110.26a to see that the first item is depth of working space. Now, of course, what it says in the code, it says the depth of the working space in the direction of live parts shall not be less than that specified in Table 11026A1. 
unless these requirements in 110.26A1, A, A1B, or A1C are met. And, of course, A, B, and C, those are talking about whether it's existing building, you have some allowances, low voltage allowances, and, of course, if there's a dead front on it. None of that information is provided here, so we're going to basically answer the question based on the, the expected working space. So when we look at this uh, for the working working space, we're obviously in A1, which is going to send us to the table. So it's nominal voltage to ground, or nominal, yeah, nominal voltage to ground. So 480 in our equation is phase to phase, so 277 volt is what's going to be to ground, right? And so that's going to put us, if you look at the table, it's going to be the second one, column on the left, it's 151 through 600, Okay. And then you go to the right, you have a condition one, a condition two, and condition three. So his question was very much driven towards the concrete wall. So you do have to understand what these conditions are. So underneath that, you have an explanation of the conditions. So let's see which one of these pertain to this gentleman's question. Now, condition one says expose live parts on one side of the working space and no live or grounded parts on the other side of the working space. Okay, so obviously in this case, we have live live parts on one side, but the other side's a concrete wall. So that doesn't seem like that one's into play. Let's look at number two. Well, let's look at all of them, then we'll make a decision. Now, condition two says expose live parts on one side of the working space and grounded parts on the other side of the working space. Concrete, brick, or tile walls shall be considered as grounded. Okay. So we know there's concrete on the other side of the space, so that's considered grounded. Right. And then the third condition exposed live parts on both sides of the working space. So we don't have both sides. So one and three is not really in play. Condition two, we have the working space. We have the live parts. And then the other side behind me, if I'm facing the live parts, behind me is the wall. That is, that is considered grounded parts based on condition two. So under condition two, the 151 to 600, you simply go to the right and it looks to me that is three and a half feet or 42 inches. So that's your question. Uh, in this case, you need to make sure that you have a space, a depth from these live parts of uh, 42 inches. And that's going to be uh, your spacing requirement. Okay. So the code says in 2110.26A1, in the last sentence of A1, it says distances shall be measured from the exposed live parts or from the enclosure or opening if the live parts happen to be enclosed. Okay, so you have, you have live parts that would be live when you're working on it, but it has a cover on it. You can measure from the cover. So we want to have that that uh, 42 inches or 3 feet 6 inches uh, away from those live parts or the cover that's covering the live parts. So that answers your question. 42 inches uh, would be your to answer that question. Uh, let's see here. The next question is, Mr. Abernathy, I understand that disconnect means are required for transformers other than class two and class three. Says, what, what has he said? Um, either in sight of the transformer or in a remote location. Uh, where I choose to locate them in a remote location, the disconnection means shall be lockable. Where in the code does it require this to be lockable? Okay, um, so what you're looking at first, and I could send you straight to another place, but we'll look first, is obviously we're talking about transformers, and he made it really clear he's not talking about class 2, class 3, which can be the smaller little transformers that are 
that are usually on you know boxes for things like doorbells. So he's talking about typical normal transformers. Um, probably dry pipes is probably the most common. And so he's asking about this. So one of the first things that we have to look at is we have to think transformers. So we go to 450. So we're obviously we're in 450 again. And quick looking at the different code references here, you'll get to 450.14, which is dealing with disconnecting means. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Now, it says transformers other than class 2, class 3, glad that makes that clear, shall have a disconnection mean located either in sight of the transformer or remote location. Now, where it is remote, the disconnection means shall be lockable open in accordance with 110.25. So this is what's going to send us back to 110.25. And once you get back to 110.25, which is a couple cycles ago, it used to say lockable in the open position at all the relevant locations within the different code articles, sections, whatnot. And they brought in 110.25 to kind of harmonize it. And, of course, now most of the cases from motors and disconnects and, you know, and uh, 430.102, they'll send you back here to 110.26. So this is a lockable disconnection means. And what it says, it says if the disconnection means is required to be locked open elsewhere in the code, obviously where we were just at in in, uh, uh, 450.14, I believe. Uh, I think it was 14. Hold on, let me go back and check. I want to make sure I'm keeping everything relevant. If you're those that, that are paused, yes, 450.14. So it made the reference up to 110.25. So that is where it's explained elsewhere in the code, and that's what that means. It says it shall be suitable, uh, it shall be capable of being locked in the open position. The provisions for locking shall remain in place with or without the lock installed. So it's got to be designed into it or in a way that even if I use a lock or not, or I'm not locking it, that the, the mechanism for that can stay there. Okay. Again, there's an exception. We're not talking about the kind of locking provisions for cord and plug connected uh, type of aspects that you might get in a lockout tag out for a cord application. We're not talking about that. So anyway, there you go. That's your 110.25 reference is what's going to give you that that information on 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 that there to to be lockable in the open position, especially if you're doing a remote application for a disconnect for a transformer. Uh, all found again in 450.14. Again, we're in the 2020 code in case I didn't mention. Okay, not that I don't think it changes, but just want to let you know. Okay, let's see here. We have another question that was submitted by a student. Uh, let's see here. And it says, uh, Mr. Airman, can you explain, can a 15-amp rated duplex receptacle be installed on a 20 ampere what is your question? Branch circuit. Okay. Uh, so, so 15 ampere duplex receptacle. Uh, maybe can it be installed on a 20 amp branch circuit? Okay. So the first thing that comes to mind in this is again, their, their question is it's a 15 amp rated device and is a duplex. So it makes a difference here. Uh, is wants to be installed on a 20 amp branch circuit. That's the question that's being asked. Okay. All right. So the first thing that we want to do with this is we want to go over to 210.21 uh, because 210.21, in case, you know, um, for for most folks, it's 
210.21 talks about other devices, and then it gets into lamps and receptacles and individuals and connected loads and blah, blah, blah. Okay. And it, it kind of goes down through, through the list in the, in the application. So that's where we want to start because we have to set the tone first. Okay. All right. So first thing we want to notice, if we go to 210.21, A is lamp holders, B is receptacles. Now, the first one reminds us that if it's a single receptacle, not a duplex, but a single receptacle on an individual brand circuit, it says a single receptacle installed on an individual brand circuit shall have an ampacity rating not less than that of the brand circuit. So a 15-amp device, single simplex, whatever you want to call it, goes on a 15-amp. It can't be on a 20. That's a single receptacle. Not to confuse a duplex, which is two receptacles mounted on a single strap. And I think that's probably where people get astray on that application, right? Probably, more often than not, that's that's probably where people will get off track, right? So then you get into uh, B2, which is a to- uh, total cord and plug connected loads, which really doesn't play any purpose in what we're looking at today and then you get to receptacle ratings b3 now receptacle ratings is is what we're talking about it says we're connected to a branch circuit supplying two or more receptacles or outlets and in this case a duplex is two okay so this is very much applicable here okay Uh, receptacle ratings shall conform to the values listed in table 210 21 b3 so we got a table gotcha or we're higher, we're rated higher than 50 amperes, the receptacle rating shall not be less than the brand circuit rating. So when, again, kind of like that single receptacle, if I'm dealing with ratings that are higher than 50, so that would be higher than 50, not including 50, then it would be specific, okay? So it's a 60 amp, it would be a 60 amp rated brand circuit. You with me? Okay. So this is going to tell me to look at B3. So when I go over to B3, uh, 210.21 B3, this is where it becomes interesting because this talks about receptacle ratings for various size circuits. And you'll notice that the question that that the the individual asks is, can I put a 15-amp rated receptacle on a 20-amp branch circuit? Now, if you look under this table, you'll see there's a 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, again, because as you told you, B3 kind of deals with up to, to 50 amperes. Anything over 50 amps, you're just going to do just like a single. It means you're going to rate it. The, the branch circuit's going to be rated for the, whatever the receptacle rating would be. Okay? That's pretty simple. And here, we're using this table to correlate. And I see this question missed a lot by students uh, that ask a similar question uh, about this. And I'm assuming this is where this was spawned from. Somebody in the Fast Tracks program was asking a question about it, where we came up with the answer to this. And so I knew kind of where I was going to go for this. But if you look at the list, you'll see 20 ampere circuit. And then you move to the right, it says 15 or 20 amperes. Okay. So in this case, the, the B3, uh, 210.21B3 is driving us to this table. This table is telling us if it's a 20 amp brand circuit, I can use a 15 or 20 amp rated device on it. Incidentally, inside they're made exactly the same. Yeah, you're charged more for a 20, but the guts are exactly the same. The faceplate might be different looking, but it's still the same guts. Don't let them tell you otherwise. I worked for NEMA. This is the fact. So at the end of the day, you see the 15 can't be over 15. That's even a duplex. If it's rated for 15, Okay, then you know the circuit's rated for fifteen. Then it's got to be fifteen. 
If it's rated for 20, then it can be a 15 or 20. Okay. Uh, so uh, it does seem odd to some people when they see the 15, say, well, why can't the receptacle be 20? Because it would give the impression that it is 20 amps available. It is not. Uh, or if you have a 20 amp rated receptacle of 15 or 20, and you're not exceeding 20, there's no expectation to exceed 20. Okay. So. At any rate, it's permitted to do this application. Now, the only other thing that I'll point out is a lot of times people have the same question about a 40-amp circuit, maybe for a range or something. They want to know if they can use a 50-amp RAID receptacle on that. And the answer is yes. If you look at the 40 amps, you'll see that it also says 40 or 50. Okay? So, again, but uh, if it's rated 50 amps, you notice that it says it has to be a 50-amp rated uh, receptacle. So, for 40, I can use a 40 or 50. For 20, I can use a 15 or 20. So hopefully that answers your question that it's it's 15 or 20. Until, it can, of course, you have a single receptacle simplex uh, on an individual brand circuit going to a single receptacle, then it's got to be, receptacle has to be rated equivalent to whatever the circuit is. Hopefully that answered that question for folks. Uh, I do get that question quite a bit. So. Uh, and the other thing that kind of clarifies is we didn't, we're not talking anything about permissible loads for multi-outlet brand circuits at this point. We were simply talking about what circuit I can put on a receptacle. That's why we're in 210.21, and we're not venturing into 210.23. That's also clears up a, a second part of that question that was asked about that. Okay. All right, so that answers that one. Let's see what else do we have. Let's see here. Mr. Abernathy, I'm getting a lot of people and inspectors telling me that I must run a dedicated circuit to my refrigerator, that it can't be on with my small appliance. What is true? Can I run a separate circuit or does it have to be on with the small appliance? Okay, so when I answer this question, uh, and this question was submitted, and it's a very common uh, question that get asked quite a bit. And the question is dealing with the refrigerator receptacle and and whether it is supposed to be on with the small appliance or whether it can be individually done and and all these nuances with it. So let's kind of answer this question. Uh, There's a lot of people that say, you know, I would never put my receptacle for my refrigerator on with my small appliance. And they're like, I just I wouldn't do it if the GFCI's trip or or capacity. And I'm thinking, Really, what are you running from your countertop? I mean, very few appliances are on this anymore, a blender here or there. But really, I mean, it's not that much going on. But anyway, I digress. So let me let me kind of answer the question. So where are you going to find this? Obviously, this is having to do with receptacles and, and placements and, and circuits that are associated with it and all this good stuff that's going to be in 210.52. Again, if you're a residential guy and you're not a commercial or guy, gal, I should say, uh, there's a lot of little rules that you have to be aware of in residential, whether it's receptacle placement, where things go, and and all that type of stuff. That's you're going to have to get used to part three that deals with receptacle uh, or the required outlets. I should say, not just receptacle, required outlets in general. Uh, and so you have to get really used to this. Uh, and so you're going to spend a lot of time in part three. And you're also going to spend a lot of time in 210.52, which is for dwelling unit receptacle outlets. Okay. And so it's just one of those things that 
that you just, you know, because this is where you're going to cover the small appliance. This is where you cover your general provisions for your wall spacing receptacles. This is going to cover, you know, your islands and peninsular uh, countertops and work surface receptacle requirements. All of that's kind of embedded in here. So whether or not you're doing multifamily and the core structure of the building might be commercial, you're, you're still going to have to be familiar with the individual dwelling unit requirements. And that's what kind of where this kind of falls in there. So this is about the receptacle requirement. And here's what's interesting. If you look at 21052B1, and of course there's going to be an exception we look at as well, but look at 21052B1, and you'll notice what it says, and and I'll read it. It says, B1 says, and again, I'm in the 2020 code for those that are following along. didn't be any change, but just so you know. It says, receptacle outlet served. It says, in the kitchen, pantry, breakfast room, dining room, or similar areas of a dwelling unit, the two or more 20-amp small appliance brand circuits that required back in 210.11C1, which requires your, your bathroom, your laundry, and your, um, your um, kitchen, uh, as well as if you have a garage that with power, your garage circuit. Okay, So, I mean, you have those rules. Those are the mandatory circuits that they're there. Uh, and it tells you that you have to have two or more 20-amp small appliance brand circuits. You could have more. Uh, but you have to have at least two, okay? And it says, of those two small appliance brand circuits, they shall serve all wall and floor receptacles covered um, in 210.52a. So again, any of the wall spacing around that room, in those kitchens, pantry, breakfast rooms, dining room, whatever, these 20-amp small appliance brand circuits that you're installing have to serve the wall outlets as well. Now, it doesn't mean the you, you only have to have two, and so it has. you could have a third or a fourth or a fifth if you want. But just know that those 20, the 20-amp 20 rated brand circuit has to supply those locations. It can be more than two, but again, keeping that in mind, you have to have at least two of those 20-amp small appliance brand circuits. Now, but they're also serving the wall spacing requirement for the receptacles in 210.52a, so again, the six and twelve foot rules. It's meeting that. Also, it goes on to say all countertops covered in two ten fifty two C, which is your two foot four foot spacing rules. So it's covering the countertops, covering the wall space in these locations. These small appliance brand circuits are going to cover all of that. Okay, and then it says and receptacle outlets for refrigeration equipment. So right there in the charging statement, it's saying, guess what? You've got a receptacle for your refrigerator. It's going to be part of that small appliance brand circuit. Now, people freak out about that, and they say, oh, no, I'd never do that. The fact of the matter is the code is telling you in the charging statement. Now, there's an exception we'll look at, but it's telling you that it's okay. You can do this. Now, other people will say, well, doesn't 210.8 tell me that the countertop receptacles have to be GFCI protected? And if this receptacle for the refrigerator is not serving the countertop, I don't want my refrigerator on this GSEI. You know, they're, they're worried about that. And I say, well, then don't. So have your two small appliance brand circuits serve the countertop and have a third one that serves the wall spacing and the refrigerator. Or why don't you supply the refrigerator first and then jump up to the first receptacle on the countertop and then put your GFCI there and then everything's GFCI protected from that point downstream. Um, you can do that. And anyway, oh no, I'd never do that because of the loads and whatever. Okay. The code permits it. Okay. This is a minimum safety code. 
This is not a convenience code, right? So again, it tells you that it can be on the small appliance. It actually demands that it be on the small appliance brand circuit. How many of them you have, two or more. Now, you do have an exception to that rule. And the exception to that rule is going to say, and it's exception uh, number two, and it says, in addition to the required receptacle specified by 210.52, and, of course, that's our counters and our wall spacing and everything else, it's saying a receptacle outlet to serve a specific appliance, such as a refrigerator, uh, shall be permitted to be supplied from an individual branch circuit rated 15 amperes or greater. So I can run an individual, which many people refer to as a dedicated, but we don't use that term. It's individual brand circuit for an individual application. Okay. And it's saying I can have an, an additional, in addition to these required, I can have a receptacle outlet to serve the specific, uh, specific appliance. In this case, refrigerator. So I can have it. It's not limited to refrigerator, by the way, but it allows me to do a common practice we've done. But the key thing here is that could I have a 15-amp rated uh, or 15-amp designated individual brand circuit supplying a receptacle outlet for uh, with, a, with a single device for the refrigerator and it be only 15 amps in the, in the kitchen? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. Not a problem at all. So, of course, you got to remember now, if that receptacle is within six feet of the top inside edge of the sink, then it's going to also be GFCI protected, okay? But it's not required to be GFCI protected just because it's in a kitchen, okay? It's going to meet other rules that it had to meet in order to require GFCI protection or 210.8. But, um, so, again, answer the question for this I can have a 15-amp individual brand circuit. I can have a 20-amp individual brand circuit if I want. Uh, I can have it on the 20-amp small appliance brand circuit if I want. Okay? Um, So I've got those options, and I'm going to probably utilize one of those. Okay? So, yes. So, you know, a lot of times people say, well, I can't have this on a countertop or this, this, this. But as you can see, that small appliance brand circuit can cover all of the wall and the countertops. The, the caveat is the countertop has to be served by no less than two 20-amp small appliance brand circuits. So however you lay it out to serve the countertops, okay? Um, but at the end of the day, yes, I can have an individual brand circuit run to my refrigerator, okay? So I don't know if that answers the question. Uh, but that does allow it to for you to do that. And if you want to run it and you don't want to put it on a small appliance brand circuit, go for it. Perfectly up to you. If you want to run another circuit for that, have at it. I can tell you most houses I've wired through the years, I put the refrigerator on with the, the 20 amp small appliance brand circuit and it never had an issue. Uh, but again, if it's a big, huge sub-zero, then it's probably going to have its own home runs and dedicated, uh, well, individual, I should say. I keep saying that. Individual brand circuit run to it. And it's probably just going to be something that's in a design, depending on the, the size of it and the load of that appliance. Okay? So just things to think about in your design. So hopefully that answered the question. Okay. Let's do one more. Uh, Paul, how many receptacles are required in a general care space within a patient bed location? I'm getting mixed numbers. Thanks, Don. Okay. All right, Don, so this is a specific lookup 
question because we're talking about general care space, uh, which is referred to as a Category 2 space in a healthcare facility. So when reading that question, we know we're obviously dealing with it. And I think the confusion, because you have the what's called the general care space, you have what's called the um, uh, critical care space, which is a Category 1 uh, and you have just these other spaces, and, and, and so it becomes quite confusing, I guess, in, in the number of receptacles, depending on what category you're dealing with, right? So in the in the National Electrical Code, you're going to go, obviously, you're going to be in 517, and since you're dealing with receptacles and, and all this type of, of, of goodness with receptacles, uh, we're going to be in 517.18, and this is dealing with uh, and it should start with, with our general care spaces. Uh, but if you go there, you're preparing for an exam or whatever you're doing, uh, one of the things that you can do is obviously go to the index, look at healthcare facility, and you'll see receptacles, and it'll put you here. But that's about where you're at when you're looking at receptacles. Now, this is all going to fall under Part 2, which is wiring and protection. So you kind of follow that, follow that down, and you'll see where it starts dealing with the receptacle requirements. Um, now, it, it starts out by making sure we understand what a patient bed location is uh, in order to be able to answer this question because this is talking about the general care space for patient bed locations and the number or the minimum number of receptacles that are required. And this does vary. Now, the interesting thing about the National Electrical Code is sometimes if you're looking in it, it'll throw a number out at you, and then the other times it'll just write out the value, like 8 or 12 or 16. or And in some cases, it might even give you a numeric value instead of writing it out. Okay, so in in this case, it's not overly deceptive in a sense that it does give you the value, um, and it's going to be obviously eight receptacles. But where do we find that? Since we're dealing with a general care space, we're in five seventeen point eighteen b, which is the patient bed location receptacles. So pretty cut and dry. Again, we're in the twenty twenty edition, and then it says the minimum number and supply, and then of course it says receptacle requirements. So. We needed to know a number, and the number says the minimum number and supply. Each patient bed location shall be provided with a minimum of eight receptacles. Now, these numbers through the years have changed at different times. In fact, I don't even have a 2017 with me. I don't know if this changed or not. The number changed, but this is where you're going to go, so it's going to require at least eight of those okay, to be able to, to utilize this. Okay? So there you go. Hope that answers your question for that one. Um, let's see here. It also goes, I guess it's important to look at two. Let's look at two real quick. So this is a receptacle requirements. It says the receptacles required in 517.13b1, which is what we just looked at, which is eight of them, eight receptacles, shall be permitted to be uh, of a single duplex or quadplex type or any combination of the three. So, interesting, if I have eight receptacles, we're talking eight, that means I could have four duplexes, which is results in eight receptacles, right? Or I could have two sets of quad, that's eight receptacles, right? Or I could have a bank of eight single receptacles, and that would meet the requirement. I think more often than not, they're just probably going to put two sets of probably a box in a box with, with two 
duplex receptacles in it. So you have two four-inch squares, and so you have eight total in that area. I think that's probably what will happen in that scenario. Okay. Uh, so again, that answers that. And of course, if we were dealing with a critical care, then that is a category one, and that tells us how many we have to have in that area as well. So that kind of gets into that. And of course, in that one, just to throw it out there, if you're looking at the critical care, it kind of jumps from eight with the general care up to. And here's interesting. See, this is where it gets into. It gives you the number instead of saying. 14. It says each patient bed location shall be provided with a minimum of 14 receptacles, uh, at least one of which shall be connected to either the following. It talks about one of which the normal uh, system branch circuit uh, or one is a critical branch circuit supplied by a different transfer switch than the other receptacles at the same patient location. So it's giving you other options type of thing. So the key here was 14. So I need 14 in this area. But they didn't spell out 14. They just gave you the number of 14. Okay. To throw you anywhere or something type of thing. So at any rate, hopefully that answers that question. And I think I probably got time. That was a pretty simple one. Uh, probably have time for one more. Let's see. What do we got here? Let's see here. Mr. Abernathy, can you explain the seal-off requirements? What does he say? Oh, I can't even read it. It says... Will you, hold on, it's kind of broken, broken up a little bit here. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. It says, Mr. Abernathy, can you explain the seal-off requirements when a conduit passes from a Class 1 Division 2 location to an unclassified location, and the sealing fitting shall be located where? Okay, so obviously we're talking, when the question here was asking, about a class one division two. So we know we're in a class one and we know we're talking, obviously we're talking classes. We're in, we're in hazardous location. Okay. We, we pretty much determined that with, with not a whole lot of work to do for that. So for us, we're going to go into 501. This 501 is dealing with class one locations. Now we're not dealing with anything to do with class one division one. The question that this individual was asking was about class one division two. Okay. And the movement between a class one division two into an unclassified area. Okay. So I'm moving from it to another area. Okay. All right. So in that case, I'm going to look at 501. And I'm going to go first. I'm going to always go to class one division two, uh, which is still 501.10B, I believe. And I'm looking and I'm seeing all the wiring methods. Okay, and I'm just looking along. And now it's talking about under this, I'm looking at 501.15, which is dealing with sealing and drainage. Okay, so I'm just scoping this and looking under this. And then I get to where it talks about boundaries. And you'll see where it says a class one, division one boundary. And then you go a little further. So we should be at this point in 501.15B2. that says class one, division two boundary. Okay, that's what it, what it says. Now, what does it say? It says, a conduit seal shall be required in each conduit run leaving a Class 1 Division 2 location. So, if it is leaving a Class 1 Division 2 location, it's got to have that seal. We know that. Okay, then it goes on and says, the sealing fitting shall be permitted 
to be installed on either side of the boundary within 10 feet of the boundary, and it shall be designed and installed to minimize the amount of gas or vapor within the portion of the conduit installed in the Division II location that can be communicated beyond the seal. So the key question for us is where does this get located? And so it has to be within 10 feet of that boundary. Okay. So to answer the gentleman's question is it has to be within 10 feet of the boundary, either side of the boundary, but it has to be within 10 feet of that boundary. So that would be in 501.15B2. And that gives you the, and there's a lot more information there that you have to uh, be aware of. Okay, but just just know that there's there's a bunch of information involved in that. Uh, it can go way deeper than what his question was, but just need to to be aware of that. Okay. Um, all right. Well, that looks like that's all the questions I want to have on today's episode. But there's some questions. Feel free to send your questions in. I'm uh, more than than happy to answer them or give them a, give them a shot. See if we can get you some answers to some of your questions. So until next time, folks, stay safe and God bless. You've been listening to electrician live with your host, Paul 